Please pray with me. Father, that is the call of our hearts. Give me Jesus. Give me more and more of Jesus that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might live to look like him by your grace, by the power of your spirit. And in his name we pray, amen. We've spent our summer going through uh, Peter's first letter, his first epistle, and uh, today we're going to conclude that series in a sense by looking at his second letter, the opening chapter of Second Peter, and, and this is a, a fitting place for us to, uh, to spend some time this day. Uh, it's interesting, we learn from Peter that he tells us that the putting off of my body is near, that is, uh, death is near, and And so he sits down to pen this brief letter, just a few chapters, to his beloved church with a genuine concern for their well-being and a significant word for them and just as significant of a word for us today from God's living word. So we're going to take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to focus on verses 3 through 9, but we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 11. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Please be seated. Even a uh, quick survey of, uh, of our headlines in any given day, any given week, would cause one to lament the current condition of our culture. We read of random violence and senseless murder, of hatred and enmity and, 
and strife at every turn. And it's enough to weary the soul and to create a longing for something better. And, and, and I often find myself in, in such a time as just, just longing for, um, for peace, if you will, right? For, for the ability of people to get along. And in essence, for people simply to be nice to one another. And as soon as I have that longing, which is a deficient longing in God's uh, terms and vantage point, as soon as I have it, I'm often reminded of this passage from C.S. Lewis in his, his classic work, Mere Christianity. He says this, a world of nice people content in their own niceness looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. So so nice people is not enough, Lewis tells us. And he goes on, he says, for mere improvement is no redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once It has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot yet do so. A new kind of man, a new creation. That's what Lewis is talking about. That's exactly what Peter has in mind as he writes to the church these believers who are following Christ, these new people, entirely new, new creation. Specifically, Peter's concerned about their faith amidst the prevalence of, of false teachers and those who twist the scriptures. And he's concerned, he tells us very clearly, that they would learn to grow in grace and grow in godliness. In fact, he starts his letter with this greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. May grace abound, may it it be multiplied, overflowing. And he concludes his letter with the very same idea. Look at the very last verse, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and and to the day of eternity. It's that that growth in grace and knowledge that Peter has in mind as he writes these final words of his, at least is what we have recorded, to the church. And so we have to ask, what does it look like then to grow in grace? And, And I think Lewis's picture is a beautiful one of a winged horse soaring high over the mountaintops. A new creation doing exactly what you were made and created for in all its beauty. Can't help but call to mind his, his story of, 
of Narnia and the winged horse that was just a cabbie's horse by the name of Strawberry. And in Narnia, it was declared, made new by Aslan into a new creature and given a new name, Fledge, and, and soaring to accomplish Aslan's saving purposes. That's, that's the beautiful picture of the Christian, everything they were created and meant to be, living a life of that kind, following Christ. That's what Peter has in mind. And, and this passage is in our Bibles for a very specific purpose. It's to help us understand what it is to know God and to live in accord with that knowledge. Specifically, there are three things that Peter wants us to take note of when he, when he begins to talk about the Christian life. There, there are three truths that he wants us to understand and learn from this passage. The first in verses 3 and 4 is simply this, that there is a delight to the Christian life. And that delight is this, that his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is everything you need to follow Christ, to live the life that he's called you to, he provides for you. See, that's cause to rejoice and to delight in God. Because he doesn't put the burden on you in your own power, in your own energy, in your own strength and determination to get that job done. He does that for you and provides everything you need. In fact, it says it has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. It has been graced to you. So the delight to the Christian life is that, that grace grounds godliness. That comes out throughout this passage. Grace is what makes godliness possible, not in our own strength, but by the very hand of God. Peter is writing, he says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. That's another translation. But it's, it's to those who have received a faith. Our translation says to those who have obtained a faith. And that's an important word. It's a very specific word that Peter chooses. It's only used three times in the New Testament. And each time that it's used, it is, it is speaking of something that is not done by effort or desert, but by lot. That is, by God's hand. God's doing, God's wisdom, God's providing. So the very word Peter chooses illustrates that, that even faith comes by God's kindness, his hand, his goodness, not by our, by our exertion and effort. That's God working. And this faith comes, he tells us, through the righteousness of Christ. It comes through the righteousness of of Christ, not through our own righteousness, not through our working or earning our standing before him, but through what God has done through Christ on our behalf. That's where Peter begins. Paul says something similar when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That idea, right, that there is an ultimate means by which God works, his grace, his undeserved kindness shown towards sinners, but then there's an intermediate means, and that is faith 
That is, we, we must exercise faith in what God has actually done for us on our behalf. It's grace and faith together, the means God uses to draw us to himself and to walk with him. So this passage is about that walking, that godly life, living in a manner that is consistent with what we know and believe. It, it is about being diligent to make your calling and election sure. That's what Peter says at the end of the passage. And so he, he doesn't want you to miss that grace is always the foundation of godliness. And without it, there might be a lot of activity and busyness. But there won't be true growth. See, sadly, for many of us, the picture of the Christian life is not like a winged horse soaring to new heights. It's, it's a little more like a rocking horse with a lot of motion and a lot of movement, but no progress. See, Peter is, is guarding against that tendency so that there would be genuine growth in grace and godliness in the life of the follower of Christ. And when grace is multiplied through the knowledge of God, it increases. It, it, is, it increases exponentially. Do you know why? Because, because God is inexhaustible. And to know him is to know his grace. And it can never be plumbed. It's, it's like an endless pool of water. And, and so to understand who God is, is to understand his endless grace. It is infinite and inexhaustible, and it abounds. It is multiplied exponentially more and more and more. Friends, it's one of the reasons why we, we focus and keep at the center the word of God in the life of this church. Because in the word of God, we come to know God and understand who he is. It's why we preach from the word as faithfully as we are able. And it's why the word makes its way throughout every dimension of life in the life of this church. And why we exhort you to be a people of the word, moment by moment, day by day, recalling God's word and being transformed and changed by it, that you might know God better, that you might be changed in that knowing and conformed to the very image of Christ. See, grace is the power to live the Christian life that comes through the knowledge of God. And through his great and precious promises, Peter tells us. How, how is it that promises further growth? Have you ever asked that question? How, how, how do they actually further my knowledge of God and my growth in following Christ? I think the person who's helped me best here is John Piper. He, he tells us that that, that we fight the promises of sin with the promises of God. Have you ever heard that? That, that is, let, let me just give you an example. The, the promises of sin, let's say it's, it's something like lust or, or some temptation in front of me that I think if I just pursue that, it'll bring me happiness. It'll bring me pleasure. It'll bring me joy. I just need that. That's a lie. It's a deception. It never delivers on that promise. We know that when we step in that direction and see the actual fruit of it, that it's bitter. But instead of pursuing that path, God gives us his very great and precious promises. So in such a place as that, I might think, let's see, 
God says, Jesus actually says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a promise, isn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so I fight the promise of sin, which is a lie, with the promise of God, which is true. That instead of pursuing lust, I pursue purity. I pursue Christ. I look to him. I cling to him in that moment. And I see him with new clarity. That's how the promises of God actually function in the life of the Christian. And they bring about the godliness that Peter has in mind. For all who are called to his glory and excellence. It's a, it's a picture of 1 Peter 2.9, a people for his own possession, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Scriptures tell us elsewhere that grace actually trains us for godliness. Have you ever thought of grace that way? God's undeserved kindness toward you actually trains you how to live for him. That's, that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about grace and godliness. Either way, it is at the heart of the Christian life. It is what we delight in, in what God has done. And that then makes possible the direction of the Christian life in verses 5 and 6. Peter has a very clear, logical connection to what he's just said. He says, for this reason. For what reason? For the reasons I've just explained. That everything has been provided for you. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of Christ and through his great and precious promises. So because all that's been given to you now, I want to tell you what your life should look like. He says, he says be eager. Right? He says, he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. Put forth the energy and the intensity to now live this way, Peter says. Because everything's been provided for you. And he sets out these eight virtues. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He moves from faith to love. It's a beautiful progression, a culmination, if you will, in, in love. I think it was Emerson who said that the force of character is cumulative. You understand that? The force of character is cumulative, stacked one upon the next upon the next as I'm a, a person of, of, of honesty and integrity and character following Christ in these very things. And it begins to have a cumulative force to it that is persuasive and bearing witness to the redeeming work of Christ. That's not exactly what Emerson had in mind, but that's what the scriptures have in mind. There may be a logical progression here that one virtue leads to the next and leads to the next. Either way, we see the picture of the Christian life all-encompassing, crossing into every area of life. I, uh, I enjoy spending time with the runners in our congregation. I like, I like runners in general. Uh, they're a pretty good set of people. And uh, particularly the ones in this church who I know of as being pretty, um, pretty focused, pretty diligent um, at setting a goal in front of them and pursuing it. I'm actually amazed by those who, 
who pursue triathlons or marathons or ultramarathons, that they have the ability to set one foot and then the next and then the next and to do it for great distances, that they are diligent in their task in pursuing it and they are dedicated to it. You see, that's precisely what it looks like to run the race of perseverance and faith, to fight the good fight, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and to run with perseverance the race before us. That's that's what the scriptures have in mind. Paul says to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That pressing on, pursuing, that's the direction of the Christian life, always moving forward. Doesn't mean we don't stumble, it doesn't mean we don't take steps back, sometimes two steps back, one step forward, but it means that we are moving in that direction. We are not content with idleness and standing still. I I would want to encourage you at this point toward a little self-reflection, a little self-evaluation. How am I doing, Lord, in these areas? How am I growing? Maybe I'm just content with where I am. If you find yourself maybe content with the status quo of your life, then I want to I exhort you with these words from St. Augustine from long ago, the Bishop of Hippo. He said, If you would attain to what you are not yet, you must always be displeased by what you are. If you actually want to grow, you cannot be content with where you are. He continues. He says, for where you are pleased with yourself, there you have remained. Where are you pleased with yourself? Where you're checking the box. I got that covered. I'm doing that, that humility thing pretty well. I, you know, that selfless service. I'm, I'm all right on that. See, where, where you are pleased with yourself, there you have remained and you are not growing. So keep adding, he says. Keep walking. Keep advancing. Peter says, make every effort. Grow in grace so that you might grow in godliness. And be assured of God's provision for you and his love for you. And behold the beauty and the glory and the excellency of Christ. When we look to him, our hearts are are captured and captivated by our Savior who is beautiful. And so we pursue him and we strive toward that end, never being content. That's the direction of the Christian life. But Peter doesn't end there. He, he's concerned and so he, he draws our attention to a very real danger for the Christian. And, that, and that's found in verses 8 and 9. And the danger of the Christian life, hear this warning, is, is that you can know Christ. You can somehow have doctrinal knowledge, if you will, right? The truths about who Jesus is. And yet have a fruitless, barren, and unproductive life. That's a very real possibility, Peter says. And he gives us a warning against such a life. There's, there's one pastor who describes that state this way. He says, Christians, uh, there are Christians who 
are sitting in their churches clutching to their born-again certificates for a long time and yet haven't seen much growth. That's a very real possibility. It's possible to believe and to start the Christian life and, and to stagnate even from the very beginning. Or it's possible to get down the road, if you will, and then to stall and to not see the kind of continual growth that Peter has in mind, growing in grace. And so he tells us the reason this happens, Peter says, is that that those who are unfruitful and ineffective have, they become nearsighted. Their vision has been hindered, perhaps clouded over by the desires of this world and the allures of this world that are many and constant. And their vision has been hindered to the point that they have become blind. They've become blind. They they don't see with clarity who Christ is and who God is and what he's done and how that matters in the moment-by-moment, day-to-day life of following Christ. He says that they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. That's, that's pretty important language for Peter and what he's trying to communicate. The warning he gives us is that it's possible to believe and to start this walk with Christ and, and then to somehow be be nearsighted and blind to what Christ has done that that we forget the gospel. The very truth that Christ in dying on the cross cleansed us from our sin. He, He brought about genuine forgiveness before a holy God by his perfect sacrifice on the cross for sinners. And that by believing, by trusting in him, by turning to him in faith, because he's conquered sin and death forever, we can be cleansed from our sin. That's the hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel. See, that truth can fade. It it can somehow end up somewhere then front and center. And I, I find myself pursuing everything but those things of Christ. That's the danger of the Christian life. And it's the one thing Peter says you cannot let happen. That the reality of who Christ is must invade your thinking moment by moment, day by day in this, in this life. And that you would be reminded of the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Friends, understanding that forgiveness is to be set free. Understanding that you don't have to live for the simple and deceptive pleasures of this world. That somehow you tell yourself, if I just have that, it'll be better. No, what you have in Christ is far better, far better, far better. And so looking to that and taking note of the cleansing that is ours by his, by his blood. The very thing we recall with this table.
the, the, the redeeming blood of Christ, of which we've already sung, of which we've praised God and given thanks for, the, the blood that he shed for our sins that we might be cleansed from sin and live a life of godliness for his glory, proclaiming his excellencies for all to see. That is why we come to the table, even now. And that is the, the, the design that God has for us as we follow Christ. Please pray with me. Father, I pray for those maybe who come by way of invitation this day. Maybe someone has just said, come, come with me this morning as we worship. I pray maybe for those who come and do not know you or do not know you in the way that you desire to be known. That you, Father, would... would uh, You'd bring clarity of sight and a perfect and beautiful vision, a picture of Christ and what he accomplished such that they would have faith to turn to you, seeking forgiveness for sin, trusting in you, walking with you, hoping in you for all of their days that they might enter into your eternal kingdom and into the presence of Christ forever, I pray. Amen.